Turn with me again, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. I have five points, um, and it will maybe do your heart good to know I will only get to three of them. So I will not pretend. (laughs) Breath. I will not pretend that I will cover all five. Um, I have the, the utmost respect for men that are in the pulpit every week doing battle um, in God's word. Amen. And there is, there is a challenge. I read an article this week. I wanted to share just an excerpt of it with you, and I commend it to your reading, especially those of you that are in my age group say 40-ish, there's an article, it was just published by Desiring God, you can find it on desiringgod.org, I think it's, uh, for those of you unfamiliar, it's John Piper's website, but it's called Five Proverbs for Men in Crisis, he did not write this article, Um, one of the men in his ministry did, but it kind of caught me right between the eyes this week as I read this. And just a, a quote from it. He said, John Piper has written about the tumults he faced at midlife, a, quote, season that lasted several years and was most acutely confusing and difficult in his 41st year. Writing more than 30 years later, as he's now over 70, he says, Quote, that was, a, that was a very hard season of life, and the record of it in my journals is to this day painful to read. His journal entries include self-descriptions like irritable and unlikable, and phrases like felt like lead, could hardly converse, wanted to cry again and again, or my emotions were dead, on adrenaline all day Sunday. Incredibly cranky and so discouraged, so blank. He's writing these about himself in his journal. So blind to the future and, again, so discouraged. He says at one point that it seems that yesterday's near collapse is the outcry of my body for some relief. And perhaps most striking of all to me as a pastor is this, quote, I must preach on Sunday and I can scarcely lift my head. In some, Piper captures midlife as a critical stage in life when physical changes, marital stresses, children's challenges, vocational aspirations, and the burdens of success or failure create the conditions for meltdown. This perilous confluence of forces leads to a shuddering reassessment of life and the desire to be somewhere else. That resonate? Can't relate to any of that. I bring this up as a reminder to myself and for those of you that are part of our our teaching rotation, Mark, uh, thanks for covering the pulpit last week, part of the preaching rotation, that to be able to preach or teach monthly um, is is really a blessing. And the reason I say it's a blessing is it allows for periodical time to reflect, if we take advantage of it, on what we're about to teach or preach on. And it was, I guess, four to six weeks ago when I cut, when we finished up chapter one. And this passage in Ephesians, or excuse me, Revelation chapter two, has been beating me up since we last talked. Um, and I want to take some time. I don't want to rush through this because I think there is, um, some incredible value in it for us and, and to rush it, um, I don't think would do it justice. So there's much in this, uh, this next two or three chapters, as we address the seven letters to the churches to ponder and to meditate on, and I think it will be to our good. And I can't promise you it won't hurt, because it does. Um, As we move from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we see in chapter 1 the amazing picture of the glorified Christ on full display as John gives us an introduction to this revelation. And we see a magnification of the kingship of Christ, which is an incredible salve in the wounds for those that were reading this at that time. We know that the church is incredibly 
embattled at this point as John is writing, because John is writing from where? A luxury resort. <laughs> no, he's in, he's in jail, potentially in a cave on the island of Patmos. So as he writes this, um, we move from this picture of the triumphant Christ, which was incredibly important for the church to learn and to understand as they're dealing with um, life abs- after his first advent. And, and in this, this next few segments here where we see the seven letters to the churches, we see a message of a shepherd to the sheep. There's going to be the stern guidance of the rod with some hard words to hear. And in this particular section of scripture that we'll look at today, we find the words, but I have this against you. Mingled with grace and encouragement with the full authority of the one who stands at the ready to move on behalf of his church. And I want you to think about this morning as we look at this, if the Lord Jesus were saying those words to you, but I have this against you what that would feel like. Because by the way, he is saying that to us. This is for us. Um, One of the men that I work with that I have a a great deal of respect for um, has taught me a lot about leadership in the professional world. And there's a lot of carryover. And who among you likes Oreos? What's wrong with you? You you people are so unspiritual. (laughs) Only with milk, right? So he, he's a hockey coach, and he told me about one of his failings as a coach. Um, for those of you that have been involved with sports for young people, you will know that there are some coaches that don't necessarily handle that power well. Uh, in one case, after following a game, um, they, they got beaten so badly that he lost his mind, and he walked into the locker room. And the first thing he found was a trash can and he kicked it. And when he kicked it, there was a cup of coffee in it. And the goalie who gave up untold amounts of goals took that cup of coffee right in his chest. And and he felt so bad. And he was telling this story to a a fellow coach who said, you you need to understand that you need to use the, the Oreo method of coaching. He's like, what is that? Uh, The Oreo method of coaching is to take an example of encouragement followed by the tough admonition, followed by what? An encouragement. And and it's funny, as as I'm reading the first seven verses of this chapter, I see the Oreo here. I see the, the encouragement Then I see the hard words, and then I see the closing admonition, the encouragement, the challenge to to persevere. And as I'm thinking about this, who who amongst us has never let down people that we respect and care about? Um, For me, that was that. I don't know about you, but some of some of us as young people are wired that we knew if we failed uh, dad, the punishment of of or the the the, uh, the chastisement or punishment that we, we would receive for doing something wrong was minuscule compared to the words he let me down. Um. And that's what we have here. We have criticism coming from a source that can't be ignored. And there are some repeating patterns in this address to the seven churches that we'll see. Each intro to the seven churches has a reference back to chapter one. And it's to remind us that the one who is addressing the seven churches has all of the authority that is outlined in chapter one as the king. He has the right of ownership and authority to criticize. 
No, we don't like to be criticized. Anybody here like to be criticized? It just does our heart good. No. Humanly speaking, we do not like to be criticized. Um, and we bristle at it. Uh, Spurgeon has a quote that I'll, I'll never forget. He says, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, you know this one? If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. A little context there for understanding criticism. But the church has its critics today, doesn't it? We hear it everywhere, especially in the public square. Some of it is fair. Some of it is motivated by scorn or by hatred. Luke 6.22 says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. We need to understand that we take criticism with a grain of salt when it comes from without, but when it comes from the one who purchased us, we're bound to listen, aren't we? What do I mean by that? Ephesians 5.2 says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and what? Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's the Greek word paradidomai. It means to hand over to entrust or to commit. In the negative connotation, um, if we were to think of it this way, if a criminal goes and gives himself up voluntarily, surrenders to the authority, didn't have to, but willingly did so, the picture of Christ giving himself up for us is a picture of him willingly laying down his life for his sheep. And so um, in in Ephesians chapter 5, where we see that that brought up, he continues it by way of application when he talks about husbands loving their wives. How are we to do it, man? As Christ loved the church. And did what? And gave himself up for it. Yes. So when the one who gives himself up for us has a word of criticism for us to hear. Should we listen? Absolutely. Some of the repeating patterns that we'll see in the letters to the seven churches, all of them except two have warnings. Um, Smyrna and Philadelphia do not. All of them have exhortations. All of them have promised blessings if they listen and apply the admonitions and the warnings such as the promise of scripture, right? If we listen, if we obey, if we apply it, there's great blessing. All of these churches, by the way, face the same challenges today that are then that we face today. And I want to read an excerpt. By the way, if, if you're looking for a good commentary on the book of Revelation, that's an excellent one. Um, very practically written. There is a a more technical one that I recommend by Beal that's outstanding, but it is deep. It's the deep end of the swimming pool. For, for my limited mind, um, this one's awesome. There is uh, an introduction to this chapter I wanted to read you. And Dave, I thought of you when I read this because it's, it's written about West Coast churches. And listen to what, um, what the writer says here. He said, West Coast churches face a variety of challenges. Their environment is anything but friendly to vibrant Christian faith. Some churches located in self-sufficient, affluent communities are tempted to pursue personal peace and a comfortable lifestyle, relying on their financial resources for security. Others are stained by the scandal of sexual immorality. Some are stigmatized by their community as aloof and intolerant of other viewpoints. After all, the populists and politicians of the West Coast finding it expedient to cultivate the favor of power brokers in the distant capitals show their loyalty to the system through a civil religion unencumbered by personal convictions. Some churches are experts in doctrinal precision, but amid the theological wars, they have lost the capacity to care for hurting people. Hmm. 
Others are unclear about where to draw the line that defines the essentials of the gospel as they adapt their message to the culture in order to reach out or to fit in with non-Christians. Some churches are all image and no reality, lacking spiritual vitality despite an impressive array of activities. Others are a tiny minority struggling to hold on in the midst of a community that ignores or despises them. These West Coast churches sound stereotypically 21st century Californian, don't they? In fact, however, this is a sketch of the situation, strengths and weaknesses of the West Coast churches in Asia Minor in the first century, to which Jesus addressed his revelation through John. Laodicea was an affluent community, and Christians were tempted to pursue personal peace and a comfortable lifestyle relying on their financial resources. Churches in Pergamum and Thyatira were stained by the scandal of sexual immorality in their midst. The Church of Smyrna apparently was stigmatized by outsiders. The cities of Asia Minor competed eagerly for the honor of being temple wardens, by building shrines to the glory of emperors who had provided financial subsidies from imperial treasuries and who were said to be divinized after death. In Asia Minor, crossroads between East and West, the worship of rulers had a long history, and Roman political pragmatism exploited this tradition in the civil religion of the imperial cult. The the Ephesian church was full of experts in doctrinal precision, for which Jesus praised them. But in the theological wars they had fought, they had lost the capacity to love imperfect people. The churches in Pergamum and Thyatira were unclear about where to draw the line that defines the essentials of the gospel as they tried by any and all means to connect with non-Christians. Maintain or maintain standing with powerful trade guilds and fit in with the culture. The church in Sardis was all image and no substance, lacking spiritual life despite an impressive array of activities. The Philadelphian church was a tiny minority struggling to hold on in the midst of a community that despised them. Seven churches different in so many ways from one another. Seven churches similar in so many ways to the churches in which we live and serve Jesus. But one thing... Do all these churches need to fortify them against the enemy's frontal assaults to make them savvy to his subtle stratagems and to make them loyal to God and compassionate toward their oppressors? They need to hear Jesus's voice. His voice comforts our weak and wounded hearts, diagnoses our diseases, shatters our dreams of ease here and now, and calls us forward to the consummation of his victory in the new Jerusalem. His voice addresses us today in his letters to the seven churches of Asia. For each letter is what the Spirit says to all the churches. I thought it was an interesting introduction. Um, And I think an important reminder for us that, that these letters are, yes, they're written to historical churches, but they're just as appropriate, just as applicable to us today as they were then. So here's the introduction, point number one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We talked at length last time we got together about the angels and the symbolic reference here. And and there's much debate about this and and where I ultimately um, fell on this is... um, at the mercy of strong theologians like John Gill, who um, I think advocate and make a sound case that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. That is the seven stars, which John sees in Christ's right hand represent the angels or pastors of the seven churches of Asia. Remember, we looked at a passage in James chapter two, Specifically, James 2.25, and it says this, In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. The word messengers in the Greek is the word angelos. So referring here to people. Now, 
Uh, again, we, we can get hung up on, on the symbolism here, but ultimately the key to remember as we look at this is that they're held in the hand of, of Christ. His message will be and must be delivered. His word, is, as Scripture says, cannot return void. Why? Because he's declared it to be so. He walks among them in the oversight of the church. He is the great shepherd as they are under shepherds. Point number two. Say, Danny, you're moving along quite nicely today. Don't get excited. Thank you, Jesse. (laughs) Point number two. We find commendable actions. Um, The first layer of the Oreo, if you will. Commendable actions. What do we see here in verses 2, 3, and then verse 6? Well, what does Jesus commend the church at Ephesus for? Were they hardworking? Yes. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. We find this word, I know, or this statement, I know, used nine times in the letters to the seven churches. And in the statement, I know, what is, what is Jesus communicating to the churches? We see in chapter one, there is a picture of Jesus where? You remember when John turns around to see this vision, where does he see Jesus? Standing in the midst of the lampstands. Right there, ready to serve it at the ready. The, the picture is having his his uh, his girdle um, uh, girt up, if you will. In the old days, when you had a tunic, you brought it up, gathered it up, fastened it so that you could do battle. Nobody likes to fight in a dress with a sword. Got to got to gather it up. So the picture of Jesus in chapter one is him ready, standing ready to act on behalf of the church. And he says, I know. Jesus has intimate knowledge of his church. He has intimate knowledge of their labor, of their efforts. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, as he's addressing the church in Laodicea, which we'll get to eventually, Lord willing, he says, I, he said, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the church in Laodicea that did not understand their own state. But Jesus knows intimately our spiritual condition. You ever felt overlooked in your ministry? In the church, nobody's shaking their heads. Yes, nobody's going to admit it out loud. But there are times when when things feel relatively thankless, don't they? Um, and it can be discouraging sometimes. The word of encouragement to the church in Ephesus is Jesus tells them, the great shepherd, to the, the under shepherds and the sheep in those churches, I know it. I see it. I see your work. The word work is ergon. It's duty. It's tasks. It's workmanship. Gill says this, quote, in thy labor, particularly the labor of ministers of the gospel in these times and the frequent preaching of it and in season and out of season and in constant administration of the ordinances, the diligent exercise of church discipline The work of the ministry is a laborious work to the mind and studying and to the body and the outward discharge of it. And it becomes more so through the malice and opposition of enemies and the weakness of friends. And such are diligent and laborious and such as are diligent and laborious deserve respect, even double honor and though they may not have it from yet, men, yet Christ takes notice of them and their labors and commends them for it and will reward them. Important reminder, why do we serve in the body of Christ? Now, 
the ultimate question comes down to our motive, doesn't it? Jesus takes the Pharisees to task because they serve how? Be seen of men. And he says they have their reward. Brief. Um, and at that point in time, no eternal reward. He said, I know your toil. Word toil there comes from the Greek meaning um, <laughs> it uses the word beating. I know the beatings that you are taking, church. And weariness as though one had been beaten. I commend you back to Piper's article about his life in the ministry. Those in service to the church take a beating for many various different reasons and from many various different sources. There's probably not one among us who can say they have never experienced hurt in their church life history. If you have, raise your hand, step forward. Be nice, Mark. Do I know of someone who's been hurt? No, no, no. You yourself have never been. Oh, <laughs> forget that one. Yes. <laughs> He says, I know your work, your toil, your patient endurance. The word patient endurance there is the word meno. Um, we, we see it in the Greek meaning to remain in a place, to tarry, to be willing to remain under. The church of Ephesus took a beating and worked hard in service to the Lord. They were to be commended in this. Hard work is good, especially when it's hard work for God. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him what? Labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul, as he is ministering to these churches, what do we find him doing? Going down to the local town council to apply for food stamps so that he can subsidize himself while he's met. No, what what do we find him doing? In fact, Aquila and Priscilla both prominent believers in the church at Ephesus, he was working with, with his hands to help support the ministry. Hard work is good. God ordains it for the believer. Christian, you you and I should be the hardest working in the context in which we live. God expects it. It's good. It's ordained. The second part of verse two, he commends them for the fact that they cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found um, or or has found them to be false. Um, we, We talked this morning about understanding the Lord's table, and much of what we talked about was in discussion of what is wrongly taught Um, as you and and John is taking us through the book of Ephesians as as you delve into Ephesians chapter one one of the things that that hits you right out of the gate Paul does not go from shallow end of the pool into the deep end with the church at Ephesus does he when you open up Ephesians chapter one what do you find you're automatically in the deep end of the pool doctrinally They were a church theologically mature. And they were to be commended for that. That's a good thing. Paul, the apostles, laid a strong foundation with the church at Ephesus. And one of the things that that God commends them for, listen to this, this is important. God commends them for the fact that they have a low tolerance for evil. Should we put up with evil and, and... um, what's the term I'm looking for? Coexist with it, shall we say? What's that? Yeah. Should we coddle evil? No. First, in our own lives. Secondly, in the church. Jesus commends them for a low tolerance of evil. And the word evil there is that which is morally reprehensible. And and here's the thing that that's impressive about the church at Ephesus. He says. They tested and found 
those who call themselves apostles, they found them to be false. There is work put in by the church at Ephesus to understand who they're listening to. Are you discriminating about who you listen to? You should be. It's incredibly important for us to know what we are feeding our minds and what we are listening to. The worldview that we are putting right here and right here. And the scripture says that the church in Ephesus tested what they heard. They were theologically sound. They were able to discern false apostles or teachers because they put them to the test. The word found there is to discover or to obtain, arrive at a particular state after a search. They didn't just automatically take for granted what they heard. We, we've heard, and as we studied through Acts, the, the Berean believers, what did they do? Scripture says they what? They searched the scriptures. This is a picture of a mature church. They could spot a fake coming a mile away. They could spot a fraud. They were rock solid in their, their theology. Their maturity was exemplary. They knew God's word. All good, right? That's a church I would love to be a part of. And if I were in Asia Minor, I'd visit that church. In Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 20, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He said, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Remember that. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Ask yourself this question. Did the Lord answer Paul's prayer? Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the Lord will give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us that believe according to the working of his great might? The church in Ephesus got it. They searched the scriptures. They were theologically exemplary. The Lord answered Paul's prayer and Paul's ministry, the foundation which he laid, paid off. In Acts chapter 20, near the end of the book of, uh, of Acts, we find this occasion in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Paul, talking to the elders in Ephesus, verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, this is Paul warning them. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that I for three years did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In verse 36, we find Paul as he boards the ship to never see the church at Ephesus again. He says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the historic record of Paul's admonition to the church in Ephesus. And in, and in many ways, the Lord answered that very specific prayer Paul's. Verse 3, he says, Jesus continues. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. Another commendation to the church in Ephesus. I know. I see it. I, I know you are enduring. 
Paul writes to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus. He says in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will what? Not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure, there's that word, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We know that Timothy, by the way, took a beating in ministry. Remember, Paul, is as he is communicating with Timothy, tells him to take a little wine for his stomach's sake and his oft infirmities. Do you think the ministry was hard on Timothy? Yeah. Yeah, it was. But the commendation of the Lord Jesus to his flock in Ephesus is, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my my name's sake and am not grown weary. And then the other commendation we find is down in verse six. Just look down there briefly. We're not going to spend much time. He says, yet you have, or yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's not a lot said in scripture about this particular sect of quote unquote Christians, but they are listed a little bit further down in chapter two, um, verse 15, where the warning of Christ to the church of Pergamum is to repent because they hold fast to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which deeds the Lord Jesus hates. And in this chapter or verse 14 of chapter two, we find that there's an association with Balaam and a connection of the Nicolaitans with those who eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality, licentiousness in the church. These same behaviors reflect Jezebel's false teaching we find in verse 20 of chapter 2, which are described several verses later in the letter to Thyatira. This was a common, albeit not expounded on, false teaching within the early church. And the takeaway that we need to understand from this is that God values immensely the purity of his word. And he hates false doctrine and false teaching and that which corrupts his people. He hates it. And he commends the church in Ephesus because they hated the same thing. My question to you this morning is, do you value the purity of God's word and the purity of the theology that you proclaim and confess to believe? Is there any among us that don't value that? I think most of us would answer in the affirmative, or we wouldn't be in some little tiny building in, in the corner of Western Wilkes, North Carolina. Surely there's a church around here with a coffee shop in it. There are other places we could be. But why are we here? Because we, we value the purity of the doctrine of the word of God. It means something to us. It meant something to the church at Ephesus. And, and the Lord Jesus commends them in that. But there's a but. I told you, this, is, uh, this has been a battering ram for me. And here we have the words of the Lord Jesus to this church. You have all of these things going for you commendable things. You're sound in your doctrine. You spot and you call out the frauds. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Those had to be painful words to read and hear. And I ask you as we started this, 
um, but yourself for just a minute as the subject of that letter. This is the great shepherd speaking to you as a sheep. Does it carry any weight for us? He uses words that would rend our hearts. He uses the word abandon, to leave, to leave behind a person, place, or thing, including a belief. He says you have left your first love or the love you had at first. First meaning that which comes in order of rank and value, the most eminent or the most important. Is doctrine important? Amen, it's important. But what's more important? He reminds us here. He said, you've left your first love. The word love here is the word agape, and it's the highest kind of love. I want to read for you an article, um, just a, a segment of one from John Sartell. He's a reformed pastor in Tennessee, and an article on Table Talk back in 2005, it's called Inexplicable Love. And he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The fish symbol worn as a lapel pin or displayed as a bumper sticker, a gold cross worn as a necklace. Is that how Jesus said his followers would be identified? That would have been so easy. Just put on a necklace, a pin, or a cross on your lapel, and you would be declaring your faith to the world. No heart-rending changes, no need to touch the AIDS patient. You can let the ugly, the irregular, the unlovable sit alone. No need for any sacrificial and self-denying love. Wearing a symbol is a lot easier than being a symbol. But I do wonder why Jesus said that we would be known for how we love each other. I would, I would have thought that he would have said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for your enemies. The apostle John was there. He understood what Jesus was saying. He repeated the thought in his first epistle. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and I and, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. First John chapter 2, 9 and 11. My brother in Christ, certainly I can love him. Didn't Jesus say that even thieves get along with each other? Don't birds of a feather stick together? How does loving my brothers prove my relationship to Christ? Who are our brothers in Christ? Sitting in our congregation at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. Sorry about that. They're not Baptist. Oh, boy. He said sitting in our church are blacks, whites, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, young and old. There are artists and athletes, lawyers and doctors, extroverts and introverts, members of country clubs and people who resent country clubs. There are repentant thieves, drug addicts, homosexuals and repentant moralists who make up our church family. Our congregation is full of people from Protestant backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, liberal backgrounds, fundamentalist backgrounds. There are people who send their children to private schools, some who send their children to public schools, and some who homeschool. Our church, like all churches, is not homogenous. Jesus did not intend his church to be. When you hang around Jesus, you soon learn that you have no control over whom Jesus brings to your church family. Peter and John probably did not like Jesus bringing Matthew into the inner circle of the 12. They did not like tax collectors. Amen. <laughs> the church belongs to Jesus, and I will tell you that he will make a point of bringing people who are not like you or me or whoever or whatever you are. There is not a more diverse institution in the world than his church. Amen. Quote, Peter, I will not only bring tax collectors, I will bring Gentiles and you will love them. And because you love them, the world will be convinced that you belong to me. 
Jesus set the bar high for this love to our brothers. He said, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. The Greek word used here is agape, the highest kind of love. We are to love our brothers like Jesus has loved us. The supernatural flow of the love of Christ into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit becomes a great, inexhaustible resource for our love to our brothers, unquote. Here's a sampling of what scripture calls agape love. And then I'm, I'm going to wrap up shortly, but I want to ask a series of questions that I have taken from these passages that I'm about to give you. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love which we sang about when we started, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Here's a question. Should God's love change our perspective on suffering? While we become jaded in the church because of the bunker mentality that we have, protecting ourselves from hurts, we neglect the greatest motive of the heart. Should God's love change our perspective on suffering? Should God's love make us vulnerable to each other? I asked you a few minutes ago if you have ever been in a church situation in which you were hurt. Have you ever been let down? Have people ever wrongfully accused you? Have you ever been misjudged, mischaracterized, mistreated? Of course. The question is, what do we do with that? The natural tendency when people hurt us is to do what? What do turtles do when they fear harm? Withdraw. They withdraw. They shrink up. Humanly speaking, naturally speaking, when we are exposed to harm, when we are exposed to criticism, Within the church body, we shrink back. I called it the bunker mentality. John 15, 7 through 11 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There's the word agape. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Why? If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll keep my commandments. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Has, was there ever a time when you look back to your conversion... <laughs> And, and we can all trace those steps back when your joy was at a greater ebb than at your conversion. You remember that day? Do you remember when you knew the assurance of the forgiveness of your sins and that sense of incredible joy and peace that the Holy Spirit gave you? As you came to understand that he took up residence in your life and indwelled you, Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us, what, from the love of Christ? There's agape again. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does Paul give the church at Rome any insight into what the Christian life will be? No, and all these things were more than conquerors. Who him who what loved us 
For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. So what is what is this distinct? Um, and I, I don't want to use the word accusation because it's not a it's not a an open ended um, accusatory thing. It's a statement of fact that Jesus makes to the church at Ephesus. John Gill says this quote because they had left their first love, by which is meant not hospitality to strangers or an affectionate care of the poor in the church or a zealous concern to feed the flock and maintain church discipline. But the love of the saints to God and Christ, and how does that get reflected in our lives and one another? Which appeared at the beginning of this church state when they were all of one soul and one heart. As generally at first conversion, love is the warmest. And so it was at the first planning of gospel churches. And therefore, here called first love. Now this, though it was not lost, for the true grace of love can never be lost, yet it was left. It abated in its heat and fervor. In Matthew 12, or Matthew 24, 12, Jesus warns um, that the love of many will wax cold. The church of Ephesus was rock solid in their theology. They guarded against wolves from within and without. But the betraying principle here is the heart, the primary principle, the protos, or the first or the most important thing. This was the statement of priority by Jesus. Our love for him must be the motivating factor. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. This is a passage you know well, but think of it. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. Listen to this. Think about how you would view such a person. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The primary motivating principle that was missing in the church at Ephesus was not sound doctrine. It was their love. So I just want to leave you with a couple of about, let's say, one, two, three, four, about seven questions that I took away from these passages that I read to you this morning. What did I do? And I asked these questions to myself before I asked them to you this morning. What did I do at the first recognition of God's love for me at my conversion? Was I filled with joy? At the first point in time when the Spirit of God indwelled me, do I remember how was my life different then than it is now? You might say, well, I've matured since then. How many of us have seen a brother or sister who we've used the term, you've heard it before, they're on fire for the Lord? And, And what would be your response as a mature, seasoned believer? Don't get over that. You wouldn't say that out loud. That would be unspiritual. Have you thought it? They're in that honeymoon stage. This is what Jesus is saying. You've left the honeymoon stage. You've forgotten. Another question for us. Am I executing my duties without checking the motive of my heart? Why am I doing this? 
Why am I doing this? One of the first things that Griffey asks when he gets out of bed in the morning is he says, can I have breakfast? Dad, I'm really hungry. Can I have breakfast? Now, my motive as far as he is concerned is irrelevant as long as he eats. <laughs> duties need to be done. That's why we call them duties, right? But I can fulfill a duty to feed breakfast in the morning and love be absent in my heart. Can it? My question to you is why am I doing what I am doing? What is the motive of my heart? I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me. We many times can't even answer it for ourselves. Why? Because we lie to ourselves, don't we? My motives are pure as the wind-driven snow. So I think. That's why David says, Lord, search my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. Why am I doing this? Think back to the words of Piper. I must preach on Sunday and I can scarcely lift my head. Why am I doing this? Have you ever lost joy in what you're doing? Think about why. Why do we lose joy in what we're doing? Because the motivating factor is lost on us that we do it out of love. We do it because he first loved us. If we love him back, it's not a drudgery. Nobody wants to hear if you're a husband or a wife, I got to do my duty today and love my wife. (laughs) She doesn't want to hear that. Does she want to know you love her fervently, just like you did the first day, and that you're still in your honeymoon phase? She would love to hear that. What is the motive for why we're doing what we're doing? We can be right and be wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? Do I see the sufferings of this life in the loving hand as the loving hand of my heavenly father to sanctify me and purge me? Or have I allowed myself to become jaded? The word jaded is tired, bored, or lacking enthusiasm. Have you ever come to the Lord's table that way? Tired, bored, lacking enthusiasm. The problem is not with the Lord's table, is it? It's me. You've heard the term burnout before. Why do people burn out? Because they've lost the motivating factor. We get tired of doing our duties for duty's sake. That's the old covenant. What motivates us under the new covenant? We we obey him. Why? Because we're compelled to? No. We should obey him because we love him. He first loved us. 1 Corinthians 13, I read above. Do I envy my brother or sister in the body because their role seems more prominent than my own? Hmm. They're appreciated. Why aren't I? Why can't somebody see what I do? Why can't somebody appreciate what I do? Do I take just a hint of satisfaction when I see a brother or sister caught in a sin? Say, Danny, say it's not so. Aha! They're human too, just like me. The one that really hits me between the eyes is this one. Am I abiding in the love of Christ as we read in John chapter 15? Well, how does Jesus say to abide in his love? He says to abide in his word. You ever felt allergic to God's word? Certainly not. Christians can't have that relationship with God's word. Here's a question for us. Do we love our time with him? As John says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. What makes it hard as we yearn to spend time with him? Have you ever struggled with that? None of you do. I see Mark nodding and said everybody else doesn't struggle with it. Why do we struggle with it? Because we're sinners. So we draw near to him. He is holy. 
What is my prayer life like? You think about the life of Jesus and how his fellowship with the Father marked his experience, and we find it recorded for us in the Gospels. He constantly stole away in the height of his ministry. If anybody, and and what is the first excuse you and I go to when we neglect God's word or prayer? I'm busy with my duties. Duties get blamed first of all, don't they? They do. They do for me. Full disclosure. I have duties to attend to. What's wrong with that? Certainly, we should be diligent in our duties, right? Jesus was diligent in his duties, but he loved the Father, and he was in close communion to him. And we find it in Scripture, Matthew 14, verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 5,000 men besides women and children. If there was ever a time when Jesus would have been on a high, I just fed 5,000 people with just the minuscule amount of food that I had in my hand. That's a good day's work. What do we find? The scripture says in verse 22 of Matthew 14, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to do what? To pray. Jesus stole away from his duties to spend time with the Father. Think about that. He stole away from his duties. He didn't neglect his duties. But the minute he could, think about his love for the Father. Husbands, if you love your wives, what do you want to do? You want to spend time with them. Our lives can be hectic. With 10 kids, we know. Time together is scarce. What do you do? If you value each other, you find time just to steal away for five minutes to sit on the porch and have a conversation, just to be together. Luke 16, or Luke chapter 6. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. This is what they want to pin on Jesus. Does he heal on the Sabbath? So that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he arose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. You see the pattern in Jesus's life? If we truly love him, we will not neglect time with him. I should put it this way. If we love him as we ought to. Luke chapter 10, we find a woman caught up in her duties. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Did she do a good thing? Was she hospitable to Jesus? Yes. Was it good that she invited him into her home? Yes. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary was enraptured by every word that came out of the Savior's mouth. And she sat there in rapt attention. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Could you, could you have a word with her? I have invited you into my home. I'm trying to get the meal ready. And there's Martha sitting there doing nothing. Or Mary, excuse me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Does this not describe us in our duties? You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
What is that? Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What did Mary demonstrate to the Lord Jesus? Her love to him. Our duties are important. Our fidelity to sound theology, incredibly important. But if they are disassociated from and disconnected to our love for the Lord Jesus himself, we're in error. I want to leave you with these questions this morning. These are the things that have been on my mind as I've been studying this passage. There is a command and a warning to remember, as we read a little bit further, remember, repent, and do with a promised blessing. And we'll dig into that next time. But for now, may the Holy Spirit do in us what he will with this passage. And may those that have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love that you have given to us. Lord, we freely confess to you that we do not love you as we ought to, that in our hearts and our motives, we may be faithful in carrying out and ministering our duties, but Lord, the, the joy of serving you is often far from us because the motivating, compelling factor of our love for you is not preeminent in all that we do. We ask that you would forgive us for this. We ask that you would um, draw us to repentance if this is a sin that must be confessed and forsaken in our lives. Father, that you would help us to remember what it was um, at our first conversion point when we saw your love for the very first time and understood what it meant to be liberated from our sin, to be freed, to be wonderfully forgiven and to know your love at its deepest point in our lives. We ask that you would remind us of that moment so that our duties, our service, our fidelity to your word would all be motivated by and compelled by our love for you. We ask that you would help us with this. In your name we pray. Amen.